And thank you, choir. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, we give you thanks for this day and for this time of worship. We give you thanks for the gift of your table and the way it calls all of us to receive your grace. May the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Did you know that Christians were once thought to be cannibals or vampires? Happy Halloween. It's true. It's true. First few centuries of the church's growth, uh, before it became the official state church under Constantine, it was this kind of countercultural, counterpower structure uh, movement, right? And so uh, there was obviously some uh, negative PR put out to help try to, you know, squelch this, this growing uprising, so to speak. And one of the things that people said was, you know, I heard that these people get together and they eat the flesh and drink the blood of this guy they follow, right? How wild is that? So you can actually go back and look at some historical documents of when there were charges being made that it was a cannibalistic cult that was developing called Christianity. Isn't that interesting? Aren't you so glad you're here? Obviously, we don't have that same understanding of communion today. Um, today, let's talk about communion. Uh, it is kind of a wild and wacky thing when you look at it in a literal sense, but of course we don't look at it in a literal sense. Instead, it's this sacrament, one of only two. Last week we talked about baptism. This week we're going to center on communion. What it is that we as Methodists in our denominational tradition and as Wesleyans in our theological tradition, what do we understand about communion? What is it that we hold to and believe? And today I'm going to talk about two specific aspects of this table behind me. The first is that we call this an open table, referring to the altar, an open table. If you're in a Methodist church for even five minutes, I hope you hear the phrase open table, because it's really important to who we are and how we exist. The idea is that this table is radically open to any and all who would like to approach it to receive communion at that time. But, but it begs the question, who, who and what is the table really open to? What specifically is this table open to? It's one thing to say it's open to all people, but come on, let's put a little bit more skin on it, so to speak. And then secondly, the other, the other big thing that Methodists and Wesleyans believe about this communion table is that in the sacrament of communion, in this holy moment, in this sacred space, we encounter what we call the real presence of Christ. That's a thoroughly Methodisty, ambiguous way of saying we find ourselves somewhere in the middle of the theological spectrum when it comes to understanding communion. You know, over on this end of the spectrum, you've got a transubstantiation view, right? If you were raised Catholic, you, you may know what I'm referring to. It's this idea that the body and or that the bread and the juice miraculously, supernaturally becomes the body and blood of Christ. We're not on that end of the spectrum. But then at the other end, there's what we would call a Zwinglian view, named for the theologian whose last name was Zwingli. That's a fun last name. And the Zwinglian view is, um, if, if the transubstantiation view is a bit more literal, the Zwinglian view is a lot lower. And the idea is that what's taking place is not really supernatural. It's really something of a fancy church tea party, um, a time to remember to eat some bread and drink some juice and to think about, reflect upon, and remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Methodists find ourselves somewhere in between where we talk about real presence of Jesus that we meet in this moment. 
Now, what does that mean? It means different things to different people, I think. I think that's one reason why it's an ambiguous statement. But the idea is that there is something supernatural, something sacred, something special about this moment called communion that we don't find in the ordinary. We don't find in the everyday. It's why we seek to receive it at least once a month in good Methodist fashion, right? All the born and raised Methodists know what I'm talking about. So that begs the question, if we encounter the real presence of Jesus through communion, what is it that the real presence of God, the real presence of Christ does? What does it do? Does it make it just feel warm and fuzzy inside? Does it tingle, right? Um, What does the real presence of Christ do once we are here? So who is the table open to? And then once we are here, what does the real presence of Christ do? Those are the two questions I'd like for us um, to play around in today. And I'm going to offer some what, I, what you might call answers. They're more just, I would offer reflections. And I'm also curious to your answers to these questions, because I think that's the gift of community. So I hope that this is a sermon that sparks further thought um, and, and further um, uh, journeying for you. And we're going to use as a helpful guide, um, a scriptural text this morning comes to us from Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 14. This is one of the accounts of what we call the Last Supper, that that initiation of of communion as a sacrament. And it specifically is going to focus on the person of Judas, who, if this is your first time in church, I want to make no assumptions, Judas is one of the 12 disciples who would be the one to go on and betray Jesus. And we're going to see that story here this morning. So So Jesus is going to gather with his 12 disciples, including Judas, for this Last Supper moment. It begins in verse 14 and says this, Then one of the twelve, who is called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I turn Jesus over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, which in case you're, if you're wondering, is actually not that much money, right? It's not that much. From that time on, it says Judas was looking for an opportunity to turn him in. Then it says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and said, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover meal? Jesus comes from the Jewish tradition. The Passover meal was that meal where they remembered that Passover experience back when the Israelites were living in bondage in Egypt, right? And it was, if you've ever seen the Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments, it was that last plague when the lamb's blood was spread over the doorway, and then the firstborn were taken from the land of Egypt, but each house of the Israelites was spared, right? The Passover meal was that meal of remembering that Passover experience. And Jesus said, go into the city to a certain man and say, the teacher says, my time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with with my disciples at your house. And the disciples did just as Jesus instructed them, They prepared the Passover. That evening, he took his place at the table with the 12 disciples. As they were eating, he said, I assure you that one of you will betray me. Awkward. Deeply saddened, each one said to him, I'm not the one, am I, Lord? Like, you should know. Um, Then it says, he replied, the one who will betray me is the one who dips his hand with me into this bowl. And Judas goes, you know, um, real quick, what me? The human one goes to his death just as it is written about him, he says. And it continues on, and then it says in verse 25, Now Judas, who would betray him, Matthew's letting us know, just in case we missed that earlier vignette, Judas replied, It's not me, is it, Rabbi? And Jesus answered, You said it. Which is a very odd response. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, 
broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. He took a cup, he gave thanks, gave it to them saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many so that their sins may be forgiven. I tell you, I won't drink wine again until that day when I drink it in a new way with you in my Father's kingdom. And then it says, after singing songs of praise, they went to the Mount of Olives. So who is this table open to? What is this table open for? The first thing that I would notice in this text is that the table is open to every stage of belief. This table is open to every stage of belief. In the invitation that we offer from our Methodist liturgy, it says, Christ our Lord invites to his table. It's not mine, it's not yours, it's not Arapahoe's. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, it says. All who love him. Oof, that feels like a high bar, doesn't it? I mean, some days I really love Jesus, but did anybody act unloving towards Jesus like this very morning on your way over here if you drove on Highway 75, if you spilled hot coffee on your shirt? Has anybody been unloving towards Jesus like in the last hour or so? I don't know. To all of those, I love how I said, to all of those who, who love Jesus. I'm like, well, does that include me? What level of, of love are we talking about here? And I think that's precisely the wrong question. I think the reason it's worded this way is because the acknowledgement is that love is, this, is not just a feeling, it's this action that we fall into and out of all of the time, right? Think about the people in your life and the way that we can treat one another so loving and so unloving. And we're, each of us, a complicated mix of loving and unloving all of the time. And so if we were only to approach this table when we were 100% in love with Jesus, my God, we would starve. Right? I'm getting hungry just thinking about this bread behind me. I think that we're all called to this table acknowledging that all of us love and unlove because we're not unlike the disciples in that regard. Did you notice the end of the story? It said that they, they sang songs of praise and then they went to the Mount of Olives. Do you want to know what the first thing is the disciples did after receiving the very first communion? Can you imagine how miraculous that must have been to be in the room? To receive the bread and the juice from Jesus Christ himself. Don't you think they had superpowers? They went out and healed the sick and they cast out demons. And No, what they did is they fell asleep after he explicitly asked them not to. That was their first action after communion. They leave this table of, the, of grace. They leave empowered and emboldened by the Savior himself. And they go, and Jesus says, I'm going to go and pray. Just do one thing. Don't fall asleep. And five minutes later, they are all zonked out. They fail miserably. They fail. They are so unloving in that moment. And that gives me deep hope. It should give you deep hope that the gospel, the Bible, this text that uplifts the, 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 the best that we are and the best that we could be says, here's the, the 12 that Jesus had chosen, and they immediately stumbled and fell. They immediately fell out of love. They immediately failed. That gives me hope because it tells me I'm not as far off as I might want to believe. This table is open to every stage of belief. I believe it's open to our belief and our unbelief. I believe and I unbelieve every single day. Do you? If so, say amen. 
If you're in the chat online, if you have unbelieved already this morning, please type amen. That's me. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, our theological godfather, so to speak, he was committed to this idea that belief and unbelief were welcome at the table. In fact, he was convinced that someone could come to find faith in God simply through receiving communion. That's how open he wanted this table to be. The fact that the grace of God could so touch my life that even in the midst of my unbelief, I could be met by the real presence of Christ in my unbelief, in my unlove, and be be drawn nearer and closer to the heart of God. My goodness. The real presence of Christ in communion meets us without judgment in our unbelief. The real presence of Christ, what it, one thing it does is it meets us without judgment, do you hear me, church, in our unbelief. And so maybe today's not been your best day. Maybe this week hasn't been your best week. Maybe love has not been a very active verb for you recently, and I hope that you know you're still welcome because I know that I am, and I have been all of those things and more so. This table is open to belief and unbelief, to love and unlove. The second thing I notice in this text is the table is open to radical forgiveness. Radical forgiveness. In our liturgy, the second part of the invitation, it says, Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him. Then it says, who earnestly repent of their sin. Ooh, that's some old-time religion language, isn't it? That could put the hairs up on the back of your neck, I imagine. We're not talking about a guy marching on a street corner saying, repent, the end is near, right? This is... Something different. To repent of your sin is simply a a high churchy kind of theological way of saying, I know I'm not perfect, and yeah, I want to be, and frequently I mess it up, but I'm still here. Right? That's what it means to repent of your sin. I think about the person of Judas at this table. I think about what it means for Matthew to tell the story in a way where it says, Judas is about to betray the Son of God, and then he shares a meal with him. Jesus invites him in. You know, forgiveness works in a couple of ways in this story. The first, of course, is the forgiveness that we're inspired to offer to others. I think about what it took for Jesus to look into Judas's eyes. The eyes of a man who he knew was going to betray him in a breath. And to still offer him that bread and still offer him that wine and still offer him that grace and offer him that love and offer him that forgiveness when he says, in this cup is forgiveness for you, Judas. I think about what it means to forgive others in our lives, to live into that self-giving nature of Jesus. Yes, it was a gift for Judas, but I think it was also a gift for Christ. Father Richard Rohr puts it this way. He says, forgiveness is the only way to free ourselves from the entrapment of the past. I have withheld forgiveness in my life from people who have harmed me and my family in serious ways, who've robbed me of memories, people that I have wanted to hurt and to be lonely and to feel unloved. I have withheld forgiveness from them for years. You know who it hurt the most? You know, because you've been there. You know who it kept trapped in chains. You know who it kept walled off from something better, something new. You know who it really impacted the most. It didn't impact them. They didn't think twice about me. As Richard Rohr said, it kept me entrapped in the past. Have you ever been entrapped in the past because of an unforgiving heart? 
Christ sits at the table and says, take some bread and some juice in your hand. Let me show you a different way. But then I think about the harder side of forgiveness. See, it's one thing to forgive others in our lives, but who is so frequently the hardest one to forgive? I hear you whispering it because you know it's true. Say it louder. Type it in the chat. Who's the hardest one to forgive? Ourselves. I don't know if you're like me, but that's so frequently true. Put yourself in Judas's seat for a second. Imagine what it must have been like to that same afternoon going to the chief priests, hatching up a plan to betray this man, this brother, this teacher, this friend, whom you've given three years of your life to and are not going to sell for 30 pieces of silver. And you know this is coming. And he invites you to dinner, and he tells you to sit right next to him. Remember, they're going to share the same bowl. And he looks you in the eyes, and you know he knows. And you know he knows you he knows you know, right? That old routine. And you think for a moment, maybe he's going to cast you out. Maybe he's going to tell you to get lost. Maybe he's going to make an example of you in front of these disciples. And then he does the worst thing of all. He serves you. He gives you the same gift he gave everybody else. And he looks you in the eyes. He says, this is for forgiveness. This is for love. What a jerk, right? What Judas must have felt in that moment. To feel and know that he was a betrayer, but to see himself through Jesus' eyes as beloved in that moment. I think all of us are Judas at times, this complicated mix of beloved betrayer the ways in which we love and unlove on a regular, daily, momentary basis. And yet even Judas is invited in. Even Judas is served. My friends, the real presence of Christ in communion meets beloved betrayers with radical forgiveness. If you believe you're beyond the love of God, quiet that critic, quiet that voice, Receive the good news that Christ offered even Judas. The real presence of Christ meets each and every one of us, a complicated mix of beloved betrayer and offers radical forgiveness where we might instead offer ourselves guilt and shame and pain. The last thing I'll talk about today about the openness of this table is that it's open to spirit-led transformation. This table is open to all stages of belief. It's open to radical forgiveness, but it doesn't stop here. It is open to spirit-led transformation. Our second, our final part of the invitation in our Methodist liturgy reads this, Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin. And then it says this, to and seek to live in peace with one another and seek to live in peace with one another. Aren't you so glad it doesn't say, and those who live in peace with one another? Again, we would starve. Those who seek to live in peace with one another. There's something about faith and seeking that just go hand in hand. 
That Passover meal that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples, as I said before, it's meant to be a meal that celebrates and remembers this meal event for the Israelites that precedes their entering into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And now Jesus is reframing this meal for his disciples, and he's making this meal event that precedes their entering into the world to sow seeds of justice and peace. We are sent to sow seeds of justice and peace. There's something about this table and the way it draws us in, in our belief and unbelief. It draws us in as beloved betrayers. It draws us in as differing people from differing places. And we are called to a oneness at this one table. A oneness with God and with each other. It's a rhythmic process. Think about body and blood for a moment. The way the body sends blood out and back in throughout itself. This table, the way it sends us out and draws us back in and sends us out and draws us back in to remind us that we are one and the same. We are connected. There's something about this sacrament that gets to the heart of reconnecting us as a fractured people, a broken people, not broken in terms of our only our personal sins or, or, or hurts or hangups, but broken in the sense that we are fractured from one another. Communion seeks to heal this. The real presence of Christ in communion meets us in our brokenness and calls us into oneness. The real presence of Christ meets us in communion in the midst of our brokenness and calls us back into oneness. And if you look around the room right now, if you're on the chat and you haven't said hello already, go ahead and say hello and where you're from and what your name is. Look around the room if you're in the room. Where else would you encounter all these different people? You don't even know each other's stories. You don't know what problems you had on the way to church this morning. You know very little about some of the people in this room. You may not even know their name, but this table brought us here together. That's a powerful piece of furniture. So lastly, why do we use this bread and this juice? It's not just because it looks good and tastes good. But when we share in this one bread, we're reminded that we are one body. We are inherently connected. There is no us and them. There is only we. It also reminds us of the fractured state in which we live. That just like Christ, we are a broken people seeking healing and redemption in the world around us. And the cup, oh, the cup. It reminds us that that redemption will be found in one common cup. I can't be saved without you. And you can't be saved without me. One bread, one cup, one table. Open to all to encounter the real presence of Christ in this moment. And so I remind us once again to close our time together today. It is Christ our Lord who invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. May we prayerfully prepare to receive. Amen.